0: Welcome to The
1: Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Precluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit and author of A Special Relationship, Trump Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V I S U P V I E W, all one word.blogspot, also all one word.com. Secure a copy of that book amount of works at the farm's official store, which is at eFarm podcast. That is the farm podcast all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here all right joining us for this outing is a repeater and heavyweight one at that he is a kentucky-based independent writer researcher and activist he is the author of uncertain futures and assessment of the conditions of the present and acceleration utopian currents from data to the ccru folks i give you guys the great edmund berger ed thank you so much for driving by again today sir
2: oh well, excited to be here for the uh the second and i guess last round of the far west series
1: yeah we're at the grand finale here so for those of you unaware this has been a continuation of the farm's storied Wackle series but with a twist we're going to look at the evolution of the old world anti-communist league network or Wackle, as we refer to it around here from the end of the cold war up to current day events And trust me, folks, it's just amazing how relevant Wackle's legacy is in 2023. When Keith and I and the rest of the original Wackle crew began the podcast series, we basically saw it as a historical undertaking. But as the show I did with a few of the old gang on Abby's Assassination last summer revealed, the old Wackle network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have been carried on, that have carried on the work of the OGs at the forefront of this revival was another subject as relevant now as ever private military and intelligence companies one of the contentions that we've been making throughout this series is that modern day pmcs and pics have effectively taken up the role by large, the world anti-communist league and like bodies in the 21st century Whereas during the Cold War, Wackle served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order so that they could arrange things with a motley crew of international arms and drugs traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals, the next generation of black terrorists, and religious fanatics and cultists of various stripes. I mean, it was was an incredible milieu both sides of which, that is to say, the overworld and the underworld elements still existing today. But increasingly, it's the private military companies and the private intelligence companies where they're doing business on any number of levels. And at the center of this was the most enigmatic of private military companies. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled PMC called far west limited or ltd but it was so much more than that as we have seen over the course of this series indeed it may be the driving force behind the present war in ukraine and how joe biden ended up in the white house Up to this point, we've explored the circumstances that spawned Far West, the origin stories of the people who founded it, its role in the Great Ruble Scandal, the Moscow apartment bombings, 9-11, Project Hammer, Wonga coup, its shocking links to the smuggling of nuclear and biological weapons, its role in the Orange Revolution, and the 2008 Russo-Georgian War, which is far more significant than a lot of people realize. Now we're nearing the end of the saga. Most recently, we looked at Paul Manafort, Burmizma, Joe Biden, and the intrigues of playing Ukraine leading up to the current war. We also took a global survey of the events unfolding during that crucial 2013-2014 period. Several major acts of terrorism, most notably the Boston Marathon bombings, unfolded along this time, along with the rise of ISIS in Syria. Syria was already facing insurrection prior to 2014 but on a limited scale. ISIS is what turned Syria into the global hotspot. It still remains to this day. Now, not all of these incidents were directly linked to Far West, but they certainly appear in quite a few of these, most notably a lot of the scandals around Paul Manafort and the Boston Marathon bombing, as well as a certain uh, terror shooting in Norway that claimed the lives of quite a few children, by thanks to a uh, white supremacist we also discussed As we're wrapping up, as we wrapped up, we reflect on how these current events laid the foundation for the war in Europe, arguably making it inevitable. Kind of describe this as a modern strategy of tension, one of which was designed to push the Obama administration away from detente with Russia and to embrace a full-blown war footing against the nation. And this was effectively continued with Trump, though, instead of trying to pressure him, it seems like it was a much greater attempt made to just outright remove him. So there were a lot of intrigues by this, most notably from the foreign policy establishment, who was basically hellbent on bringing us the current war that we are fighting today and maybe even spreading it in across the globe. It's, It's a distinct possibility now. Anyway, as we go to close things up, we're going to be looking at a nation believed to have been directly managing Far West at the end of its run, and that is good old Saudi Arabia. This ties directly into the spectacular assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, and it's entirely possible Khashoggi's death marked the end of Far West as an entity. It appears linked to a color revolution that was in the works, and this was always a specialty of Far West. But it failed, and the network was rolled up. But if that was the end of Far West, what an end, right? As with all of the Far West series, this show and the series as a whole is dedicated to Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent. Ed was absolutely the heart and soul of the original Rackles series. I hope and pray that I have done him justice with these. As greater researcher he was, he was an even better man. So, on that note, let us start the show. <music> We're turning our attention to the man left RU alleges was running the day-to-day operations of Far West by the late Knots. This was none other than Jamal Khashoggi. It's a fitting conclusion because Khashoggi's spectacular death seems to have been tied to yet another color revolution. Indeed, this may be the last color revolution that Far West Network was ever linked to, or ever will be. Probably never know the extent to which the Saudis rolled up Jamal's network, but everything about the events leading up to his death is consistent with how Far West did business. Obviously, Jamal Khashoggi has a really interesting background. He's long been suspected of being an intelligence asset working under the cover of a journalist. Just interesting in light of the discussions we were having about Fusion GPS in an earlier installment. Again, this was a private intelligence firm that was largely started by journalists and has played an enormous role in the Russian gate disinformation campaign. But anyway, getting back to Jamal Khashoggi and the uh, stuff that goes back before the Far West days and whole legacy there. So Khashoggi was actually embedded with Osama bin Laden and his jihadist forces during the Soviet-Afghan War. Later, he worked in the Saudi embassy in D.C., which would be a highly sensitive intelligence posting. His uncle was famously Aidan Khashoggi, who's long been linked to the Far West saga. We've already talked a lot about Aiden in the infamous 1999 meeting at his villa, so I'm not going to go back over that now. But, the, but suffice to say, the Khashoggi family has long been entwined with Saudi intelligence and Far West. Despite his uncle, blood and oil authors Bradley Hope and Justin Meshack note that Turkey Bin Fizzle... Is the man long believed to have been Jamal's handler? They report that Turkey and Jamal were quite close. This tracks with the power structure of Saudi Arabia, which got in which we got into a bit in the earlier episode. But basically, the sons of Ibn Saud shared power through three main branches of the security services. Right. So there's the Ministry of Defense, which controls the army and the air force. Uh, though the Saudi army is really an afterthought, thought uh, within the ministry, it's the air force that is the real power. Okay. Then there is the Ministry of the Interior, which oversees the national police and the main intelligence services. And then finally, there's the Saudi National Guard, uh, which is much more significant than the army in Saudi Arabia. Because again, the Saudi Arabia doesn't do a lot of at least historically, a lot of military operations behind its borders. Typically, uh, foot soldiers were principally needed for uh, peacekeeping, quote unquote, and security concerns within Saudi Arabia itself. Hence the reason why uh, the National Guard is fairly prestigious there, as it's crucial to the nation's internal security, quote unquote, as a whole, much more so than um, the regular army. But anyway, Turkey Ben uh family has long dominated the Ministry of the Interior, which is, again, where the uh, main intelligence services and the national police have been housed for decades. So this seems to track with what we've already explored concerning some of these characters. So reportedly, Turk bin Fensel controlled Far West by the mid knots while Jamal ran the day-to-day operations. And Turkey, by the way, um, for those of you unfamiliar with this guy, he was the head of Saudi's intelligence service, um, I think from the late 1970s all the way up to like 2001, either shortly before or shortly after 9-11. He... Uh, is known for having very close ties to the U.S. security services, to put it mildly, one of the most um, pro-U.S. figures within the Saudi royal family and a guy who historically held a lot of very significant posts in the nation. But anyway, Founder
2: of the, the, the infamous Safari Club.
1: Yes, yes, that as well, yeah. which is also interesting why he would theoretically be... Uh, the actual owner of Far West yeah. Point. Because
2: it, because it, you know, the kind of overlooked aspect is that the Safari Club was an intelligence kind of apparatus, but it was named for the physical location where they would meet. And that physical location was a club called the Safari Club that was owned by Adnan Khashoggi. So it makes sense, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. So... If theoretically Turkey was the actual head of far West and Jamal was running the day-to-day operations, uh, this would be consistent with the alleged working relationship that they had had for many years with Turkey being Jamal's handler. It's also interesting that, you know, before Jamal's day job is working as a journalist again, you know, noted time and again throughout this series, but far West made extensive use of the media especially online, they love to shitpost against each other and all kinds of other stuff like that. So it's not entirely surprising Jamal was adept at this. He had nearly a million followers on Twitter at the time of his death and was highly skilled in the use of social media. Jamal was also a business partner, partner of Turkey bin Abdullah al Saud. Who was an Air Force officer who at one point tried to gain U.S. support for a coup against MBS. Um, so anyway, um, Turkey bin Abdul Al Saad and MBS were more closely related than uh, Turkey bin Faisal would have been to him. Um, they both had families that were active in the Saudi uh, military. But uh, Ben Abdul's fan or yeah, Ben Abdul's family was in the Air Force, which I said before was the real power. Whereas MBS uh, had ran the Army, which was considered really of the main, uh, you know, to, uh, the main Saudi security forces by far the lesser of it, right? So. And it seems like on top of that as well, Turkey bin Abdul's family had had historically been based more out of the National Guard rather than the Ministry of Defense. Whereas MBS had stronger ties to the uh, Ministry of Defense. But this would have made this guy quite formidable because he had managed to make inroads in the Air Force within the Ministry of Defense as well as having his historic family ties to the National Guard. So anyway... Um, Turkey bin Abdul was, I believe, one of the Saudi princes MBS had arrested and detained in 2017. So MBS comes to power. Mohammed bin Saad, I believe, is uh, specifically his name, for those of you wondering. He becomes a major supporter of Donald Trump, financing him heavily during the 2016 election cycle. Ironically, with such an emphasis on Russian links, Everyone overlooks the role that MBS, along with the United Arab Emirates, played in bringing Trump to power. At the same time, MBS also pursued a closer relationship with Russia, and they've only become more entwined, that is to say, Russia and Saudi Arabia in recent years. Under MBS, the Saudis have increasingly fallen into this camp, and this is coming after they put up a lot of money for trump's campaign in 2016 and i believe also 2020 as well right so obviously this has long been a major concern of the united states specifically um russian links uh, increasing joint links to russia with saudi arabia israel was also concerned as the kingdom has long been the u.s's most reliable ally in that region um Israel's most reliable ally, I should say, along with the United States' most reliable ally. So the Khashoggi family in Turkey, Ben Fazel, have long been close to the US, especially the Bush family. The kingdom wielded considerable international influence during both the Reagan Bush years and the Bush II administration. And again, this. Tracks with Jamal and Turkey's alleged links to Far West and its broader links purportedly to KBR and Halliburton, which, again, was a big company for Dick Cheney and had a lot of influence during the Bush II administration. Thus, it should come as a little surprise that Jamal moved to the forefront of efforts to discredit MBS internationally during the prior decade. He did this via columns in the Washington Post, Paper that was again at the forefront of the quote-unquote resistance against Donald Trump as well. At the same time, people like Vladimir Fillon's alleged business partner George Soros were also putting up big money to remove Trump from power. We've already explored the links Far West had to this network, which was at the forefront of the U.S. color revolutions for decades. Khashoggi's actions seem like part of a run-up to a color revolution in Saudi Arabia. And to wit, another activity Khashoggi embarked upon during this time was working with the families of the 9-11 victims in a lawsuit against the kingdom. This is, of course, the the absolute height of absurdity, as Khashoggi was a good friend of Osama bin Laden and collaborated with him during the 1980s. After he was killed by U.S. forces, he... Uh, still was expressing regret for Osama bin Laden while still theoretically denouncing his actions. But anyway, a lawsuit, if it succeeded, would have cost the kingdom millions, if not billions of dollars of restitution to the families and would have absolutely destabilized MBS's regime. And be assured, Khashoggi would have definitely been in position to have some serious dirt about all of this we're gonna digress a bit at this point and get into that because it's really relevant to why he was dealt with i think in such a um decisive fashion to put it mildly so Ed, uh, can you tell us a bit about a certain meeting that happened in Dallas, Texas in 2001 in the run up to 9-11? First off, who was present for this meeting?
2: Okay, I guess first of all, I want to give a shout out to Josh Messite, who's been a great essay series for Cosmonaut magazine called Surge and Decline, which analyzes 9-11 as a, a deep event from a more world systems theoretical framework. It's very, very good, and as far as I know, this was the first place where the documents I'm about to mention were discussed. Josh was able to get copies of the documents and was kind enough to share them with me. Uh, The importance of these documents requires a little to unpack. Uh, The key person here is Zacharias Moussali, who is a French member of Al-Qaeda. He began to make contact with Islamic extremists in the UK sometime in the mid-1990s after attending some of the more controversial mosques in London. I don't believe the exact path is nailed down precisely, but Mazawi arrived for training in Afghanistan in 1998. Two years later, Mazawi was in Malaysia, where he was linked to Yazid Sufat, who was allegedly doing anthrax research for Al-Qaeda, and ran a special laboratory for testing chemicals and pathogens. And, you know, th- this is a pretty interesting set of allegations, g- given what we discussed in the Project Hammer episodes. Uh, basically, in this period, when he's interacting with these figures, you have Masawi acting as a courier for Osama bin Laden and other high-level al-Qaeda leaders. We put him in a position to note certain things, you know, those certain things were particularly focused on the interactions between powerful saudi interests and terrorist networks and the flows of money between the two uh, the people that massawi have claimed to encountered included Khalid bin Mavus, who who is one of our bcc insiders he's actually the largest equity shareholder in bcci as well as somebody that was deeply tied in to the Bush family, various kind of oil and banking and real estate uh, structures in Houston, Texas. Um, Others that Masawi crossed paths with included another infamous Bush crony. That would be Prince Bandar. And he also crossed paths with somebody that you've talked about a lot on here, uh, Prince Turkey, among many, many others. So, you know, f- flash forward from 1998 when he's at these anthrax laboratories to 2001, uh, Musawi shows up attending flight school in the small town of Norman, Oklahoma. And this is where a number of the 9-11 hijackers, including you know the infamous Mahan and Atta, had passed through. There was actually something of a history there. The FBI had been investigating people tied to the Bin Ladens uh, in Norman, Oklahoma, as far back as 1996. You know, and to make this a little more suspicious, the flight school in question was tied to the University of Oklahoma, and you know attendees to the flight school would stay in you know, the University of Oklahoma's dorms. And the president of this university, you know, from the years of 1994 through 2008, was one David Boren, who was the mentor, the CIA director George Tenet, and in fact, on the morning of September 11th, Tenet and Boren were having breakfast together, and so it's you know kind of interesting that Massali was at this flight school um, in Norman connected to where Boren, you know was the president of the university. Uh, Boren has breakfast with Tenet and then that evening Tenet has meetings with Bandar Bush, who Masali also knew. Okay, so another person who was traveling in and out of Norman, Oklahoma in this period was, according to Misawi's statements, Prince Turkey himself. And this starts to get us into the time frame of the meeting that you're referencing. Uh, Musawi charges that he attended this meeting in Dallas with one Princess Haifa, where a donation was made by her to help finance the hijackers in the 9-11 attacks. Now, these allegations are important for several reasons. The first is based on who Princess Haifa was and her family ties. You know, for one, she is the sister of none other than Prince Turkey, you know, for starters. Next, you know, she is the wife of Prince Bandar. So she could be regarded you know, not only as a powerful figure in the Saudi royal family itself, but somebody who was exceedingly close to their intelligence apparatus. Um, then there are the people who are charged by Masali, with attending this um, summer of 2001 meeting where this donation was made, uh, there was Masawi himself. There was Princess Haifa, who gave the money. Then there was the intriguing figure who received it. That would be Omar al Bayoumi. And then the final person who was there in a role that is not exactly explained by Masawi, and that would be Jamal Khashoggi.
1: Okay, Ed, what did the FBI establish about this milieu in terms of money flow?
2: The earliest known date that we know that Massawi made the allegations about Jabal Khashoggi was in statements he gave in 2020. And these were contained in the documents that were dug up by Josh Masite. Um, and the way that he explains it is that, you know, Khashoggi's there. In some kind of supervisory capacity, perhaps, and this would certainly dovetail the allegations that, you know, on the one hand, that Far West might have been involved in 9-11 attacks. And then two, that Jamal Khashoggi was a, a high-powered figure within Far West. Um, but the FBI has talked about these money flows from Princess Haifa for, for many, many years And even in the 9-11 commission report, we find passing reference to it. Um, They treat it rather ambiguously. Can't really tell us the purpose of these money flows and whether or not that these were actually related to the 9-11 attacks. Uh, This almost certainly fits an ongoing pattern of obfuscation by the official investigation and by the 9-11 commission report itself. Um Musawi, you know, in his allegations, states that money flowed from Princess Haifa to Omar Al-Boyumi. And we know for a fact from the FBI's own investigation that this money did go from Haifa to Al-Bayomi in a rather torturous route. Um and this kind of flow of capital from one to the other had been something of a routine. Before the even before the dates that were stated by Masali, that is, that these things had taken place even prior to summer of uh, 2001. So, in the FBI and the 9 11 uh, Commission reports, own disclosures, you have a series of checks, you know, money in the form of checks that are provided between the years of 1998 through spring of 2000 to go from Haifa to Osama Bosnan. Now, Osama Bosnan is a Saudi national who's living in California. And the ostensible purpose of these checks was to help Bosnan's wife pay for thyroid surgery. And, you know, it's interesting because this money for Bosnan's wife is routed through the the ever-shady Riggs Bank. In DC. You know, this is a very infamous uh, favored bank by the CIA, which was owned by a close insider of the Bush family, a man named Joseph Albritton. Um Throughout its history there's been all kinds of figures that have utilized Riggs Bank. Um, Prince Bandar, for example, uh, did a lot of his banking at Riggs Bank. Another individual Quite infamously, who used Riggs Bank would be Pinochet, the dictator in Chile. Just um, as a you know very, very interesting aside, uh, I got a bunch of documents from some archives in New York. They're primary papers about Permindex, the um, kind of shadowy Swiss-based entity that pops up in certain strands of JFK assassination theory. And in those documents that I got out of the Columbia University archives do show that Permindex was using Riggs Bank. And we do know that the CIA, you know, it's incontrovertible that the CIA had people on the Permindex board. Um, So you could say that Riggs for a very long time, going back to the 1950s, had incredibly deep ties to America's secret service. And intelligence apparatus so when you flash forward to the, the late 90s the early 2000s you see this money going from princess haifa to bosnan um and it's going through Riggs bank and then from there it ends up going not necessarily to bosnan's wife but to Omar al-Buyumi, the Bosnans end up forwarding this money to him. So what this actually looks like is that the Bosnans are something of a cutout, a means to obscure the money trail. Uh, you know, a person B put in place to kind of obscure the flow of money from person A to person
1: C. All right, Ed, can you tell us a bit about this Omar al guy? What is his story?
2: So who is Omar al-Bayoumi? Well, for starters, he is a Saudi national who had lived in San Diego, California from 1993 onwards. You know, when he was living in San Diego, he was ostensibly a graduate student in business administration but he rarely attended class. or was even bankrolled in the normal course load that somebody would expect of a grad student. Um, he otherwise did not work at all, uh, but regularly received money from a company called Dalla Avco. And according to an FBI file that was declassified in 2021, Al Boyomi was a, quote-unquote, ghost employee, one of approximately 50 such individuals who did not show up for work at Dala Avco, but apparently drew an income nonetheless. You know, so what, what is this company, Dala Avco? Well, it, in turn, is the aviation leg of a massive Saudi multinational called the Dalla al-Baraka Company, which was owned by an individual named Abdullah Kamel. And so I would just like to quote from Jean-Charles Brassard's book, Forbidden Truth, which is a, just a really excellent book on kind of the higher-level banking and offshore financial uh, mechanisms utilized by al-Qaeda. really kind of undermines a lot of the, the popular imaginary of what al-Qaeda was. And how it functioned. But Rizard um, writes Dalla al Baraka's founder, Salah Abdel Kamel, had been an advisor to the Saudi Minister of Finance and Inspector General of Finance. In his capacity as a major shareholder in the al Baraka Islamic Investment Bank of Bahrain, Kamel managed several banking entities whose activities were called into question during recent investigations targeting fraudulent and possibly terrorist financing networks. Kabel was president of the Al-Baraka Bank Sudan and a shareholder in the Sudanese Islamic Bank, <clears throat> a subsidiary of the Faisal Islamic Bank of Egypt, SAE. And he was also a shareholder in the Tadman Islamic Bank and in the Islamic West Sudan Bank. He was also a board member of the National Development Bank in Sudan. Finally, he was one of the founders of the Faisal Islamic Bank Sudan and of the Arab Investment Company. The Tadamon Islamic Bank was a shareholder in 1991 in Al-Shamal Islamic Bank in Sudan, considered by American authorities to be one of Osama bin Laden's principal structures of investment after 1991, when the fundamentalist leader moved to Sudan. Okay, so here we take a little line that's coming out from Dalla Avco, passes through this figure of Abdullah Kamal, who owns the company, who is also owning a networks of banks that are the principal financial conduits being used by Bin Laden. In his activities in sudan you know and then at the same time this company that he owns dala avco is employing ghost employees like all bayoumi you know um and it's very closely tied to the saudi ministry of defense dala avco is and it provides significant contracting defense contracting there so here we have a allied line leading back to defense and intelligence circles in Saudi Arabia. Um, So it's important that, you know, Al-Bayoumi himself, even in FBI files that predate 9-11, was suspected of being an agent or at least an asset of Saudi intelligence. And when you put all this together, it really does look like that. You know, what is the functional purpose of ghost employees, employees that do work for a company, but don't actually do any work, you know, but nonetheless receive money. And if it's true that Al Buyumi was a you know a Saudi intelligence officer, that makes the fact that he was receiving um money from Princess Haifa, who's you know just mentioned, was very close to both Ban- Prince Bandar and to Prince Turkey you know, all the more significant. It looks like high-level Saudi coordination in the lead-up to the 9-11 attacks, which, you know, then raises the question, what is the role of Omar al-Bayomi in the 9-11 attacks? Why is this money that goes from Princess Haifa to him, sometimes in the company of Jamal Khashoggi, um, what, what does that have to do with anything? And it's exceedingly, even critically important because al-Bayoumi became the point of contact for two al-Qaeda operatives, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Middar. And these two, this uh, kind of dynamic duo, when they arrived in San Diego, you know, after kind of traipsing around the world, visiting various terrorist networks and training camps, Uh, They get to California, and they cannot speak any English or hardly any English at all. And who arrives, you know, to aid them, but all by He arranges housing for them. He provides them with money. You know, is that money that's coming from Dala Avco? And then most importantly, he enrolls them in a series of classes, and these classes include language courses and flight school. You know, so you could say that, you know, presumably this was pay, being paid for out of the proceeds from Dalla Avco. So you could quite literally say that this major Saudi entity linked to their defense industry ministries, was actually paying these two al-Qaeda operatives. So at the same time that al bayumi was kind of moving al-Hazmi and al-Midar around the chessboard, he was in contact with Mutayib Al Sudari. This was a representative from the Saudi Ministry of Islamic Affairs. He was attached to the Saudi Embassy in Washington D.C. Uh, Al Sudari was linked to other associates of Al Qaeda. You know, one notable example being Zaid Khalil, who once provided a, a satellite telephone for Osama bin Laden. You know, so so where does where does all this go? What what becomes of Al Mosni, Al Hazmi, and Al Midar? Well, on the morning of September eleventh, two thousand one, these were two of the hijackers on American Airlines Flight seventy seven, which crashed into the Pentagon.
1: Was the role that the CIA played in these intrigues in terms of blocking the FBI, Ed? The, the role of the
2: CIA in obstructing these leads gets us into some
1: seriously
2: kind of dark, uh, creepy, crawly zones in the run-up to 9/11, and much of this is pieced together by Kevin Fenton in his excellent book, "Disconnecting the Dots." Um, so. Uh, I highly recommend it. anybody interested in 9 11 or any of the subjects in, in this Far West series. Like, definitely check out Disconnecting the Dots if you haven't done it. It's perhaps maybe the definitive work on, you know, not 9 11 conspiracy or evidence for 9 11 conspiracy. Um, but, anyways, l- long before they arrived in San Diego and made contact with Al Bayoumi. Uh, Al-Hasmi and Al-Midar had been tracked by the CIA, um, and somehow the CIA lost track of them when the pair traveled to Bangkok over in Thailand. Um, with, with the two vanishing from, from their radar, the CIA turns to the Thai security services and asks them to monitor the pair, you know, to track them in-country. And Evidence shows that the Thai security services did do exactly this. And in fact, they provided the CIA with information that Al Hosmi and Al Midar did depart Bangkok for the US in early 2000. You know, and, and then what happens? The CIA then proceeds to sit on that information. They wait almost two months later to issue a cable that cable contains only partial information that known associates of bin Laden had landed in the U S uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, the, the way that it worked is that the cable that they released, despite having received information about the two, you know, Al Qaeda terrorists, the cable only had information pertaining to one of the terrorists entering the U S um, so the CIA, you know, knows that these terrorists have arrived in the US, they sit on the information, and they do not, most importantly, give any of this information to the FBI, which at the time was running, you know, a series of operations tracking Al Qaeda affiliates and members. Um, had the FBI been notified, surveillance would have been placed on on all Hazmi and all Midar But because, you know, the information was not shared, no such surveillance was put in motion. Um, Now, it gets even more important because the information that was being held about these two figures was held by um, what was codenamed ALEC station. And this is the official CIA bin Laden station, which had been tracking bin Laden and his associates for several years at this point. And Alex Station was supposed to liaison and share information with the FBI. You know, if the FBI did know about al-Hasmi, you know, through Alex Station and that surveillance was established, it's literally likely that 9-11 itself never would have happened. Under surveillance, al-Hasmi and al-Midar would have led the FBI to Omar al-Bayoumi. Know, who's connected to these high-level money flows, but also had, you know, they also had contact with the majority of the 9-11 hijackers, you know, so, but there was also this contact with figures like Princess Haifa, Prince Turkey, Prince Bandar, potentially, you know, if Masawi is telling the truth, to Jamal Khashoggi, And so not only would the 9-11 plot have been revealed, but it's possible that the Saudi and perhaps even the Far West connection to 9-11 would have been discerned. So, you know, if the CIA had released the information to the FBI like it was supposed to do, the whole event would have been halted and the network would have been disrupted. But the CIA withholds the information and everything goes, you know, just totally full steam ahead. And this is, you know, really important because this is not the only instance where this happened. You know, the Fenton's book, Disconnecting the Dots, it's very meticulous, you know, just showing instant after instant where the CIA's ALEC station helped obscure and obfuscate, you know, the trail of the 9-11 hijackers and just allowed that plot to move full steam ahead. Um, not really going to summarize all of it. But one of the people that Alex Station tussled with was the doomed John O'Neill, who I believe that we talked about in one of the earlier episodes. Um, John O'Neill was the FBI agent who died on September 11th, shortly after retiring from the FBI. Um, He'd also been the guy that was really very heavily focused on Osama bin Laden, interestingly enough, had earlier tracked none other than Robert Maxwell through some of the most elusive and shadowy parts of the the media mogul's life. Um, And so one of the things that Fenton focuses on is what we can call the August 21st, 2001 mystery. So this was the day that the FBI finally informed I mean, sorry, this was the day that the CIA actually did finally inform the FBI that the presence of the presence of al-Hazmi and al-Midar in the U.S. So conveniently, the person who they relayed this information to wasn't even in the office that day because they were away on vacation. Now, there's other weird things about the date that the CIA finally chooses, you know, to, to relay this information. This August 21st, it happens to be the day that the attack date of September 11th was made known to the hijackers by the plot's primary planners, and it was in the days that followed that they began to purchase airline tickets. Okay? So just to to reiterate the the high strangeness of this, the day that the CIA fires off a communique to a person at the FBI is the same day that the hijackers begin to put the actual mechanics of the plot in motion. And this information then sits several days. In the meantime, the hijackers buying airline tickets because the person that the CIA provides the information to Is away on vacation now to make this even stranger this was also the same deal same day that john o'neill left the fbi you know set in motion a, a series of coincidences bordering on the improbable you know he ends up with a job at the world trade center where he dies on the morning of september 11th um you know one of his last tasks as an agent at the fbi was to send Ali Soufan, one of the key bureau guys tracking Al Qaeda suspects, to Yemen to conduct investigations there. Now, what's happening here with Soufan being sent abroad, and O'Neill leaving the FBI, was the uh, was the FBI basically winding down its machinery for tracking Bin Laden, you know, under the weight. Of CIA obstruction of information flows and internal politics, you know, the, the heavyweights in the FBI that were concerned with Al-Qaeda were being scattered to the wind. So, you know, at the point where 9-11, you know, finally shared this vital information with the FBI, it was happening right as tracking these figures was being deprioritized. You know, So not only was a person away on vacation, but the whole operation was kind of being I wouldn't say shut down entirely, but it was, you know, the the FBI was moving on, so to speak. Um, I think it's pretty clear that all of this was by design. You know, drum out these people who want to, you know, halt al-Qaeda, you know, obstruct this information until the last possible moment. And it allows, you know, the attack to take place. I, I don't know any other way that you can describe what's happening here other than the cia making sure that 9-11 took place so you know that that might seem very kind of far abroad from the main topic that we've been discussing um but you know so we rat back to jamal khashoggi so you know to kind of reiterate massawi puts khashoggi in this key context right where this money is being exchanged from, from powerful Saudi interests to Omar al-Bayoumi. Omar al-Bayoumi, who at the same time is basically the handler, the point of contact, the, the chess mover for the very two Saudi nationals and al-Qaeda terrorists that the CIA is trying desperately to prevent the FBI from getting, you know, uh, um. A handle on, so what it basically states when you lay it out like this is that Musali puts Jamal Khashoggi in the direct proximity to the most sensitive dynamics in the run-up to September 11, 2001.
1: So there were some serious stakes at play with Jamal Khashoggi possibly collaborating with the families of the 9/11 victims. This seems like a nuclear option in a lot of ways. What's more, Khashoggi began working with dissidents around the world and bringing them together in a broader network. The plan was to create an army on social media to undermine MSB. He also started to solicit support from Qatar and Turkey. And uh, this is also getting around the time when Saudi Arabia really started to have a... uh, frankly, antagonistic relationship with Qatar, to put it mildly. Uh, they've uh, been vying for who would really dominate the Gulf states for a number of years now. But anyway, uh, Jamal Khashoggi had been close to Yasin Akhtai, a leading official in Edrogen's regime for years. Jamal began calling for democracy in Saudi Arabia, which is um, always a dicey proposition, and setting up Arab Spring-like organizations. So again, this is totally consistent with the color revolution. But let's step back for a moment and consider Turkey. Far West allegedly had a lot of supporters in this country among the military and the gray wolves of pan-Turkish nationalist movement. Far West allegedly used these contacts to pressure Edrogen at times. Further relations between Saudi Arabia have been strained during the Arab Springs. When MSB came to power, Edrogen sought a reset, and for a time he got one. Saudi Arabia assisted Edrogen in suppressing figures like the Golan movement, uh, figured a figure linked to the Golan movement, rather, which reportedly also had ties to Far West. We got into that a bit in uh, part ten, and it did a good job of recapping all of these um, assorted connections and so forth. But anyway, uh, they also sought to collaborate with one another in Syria against ISIS. Uh, this is um, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. And of course, Russia has cultivated relations with androgen with mixed results uh, right up to the current day. So... It's interesting that Erdogan and Turkey would play a leading role in leaking details of Khashoggi's death to the media. This resulted in a full court press uh, by the Western media, with the Washington Post leading the charge in a blitz to unseat MBS. But Donald Trump continued to support the Saudi prince, which effectively doomed any possible regime change. But it's fitting that this alleged president of far west was used for political warfare and death to attempt to launch a color revolution it's um it's about par of the course and indeed <clears throat> with saudi arabia's growing links to russia at the time it cannot be discounted that the old far west network was being put to work in one final coup bid and if this was the end of far west it was uh certainly figure fitting with uh, Khashoggi being dismembered in the Turkish embassy. Well, guys, <clears throat> it has been quite a journey here. Uh, we have uh, done our best to try and recap how all of these different threads are still playing out to this day. And, of course, you know these events with uh, Khashoggi and a lot of the pro-Western elites in Saudi Arabia being uh, suppressed by MBS... Uh, after his rather brutal um, assault on them in 2017-2018, which resulted in many of the family members being uh, detained and arrested. It really changed the trajectory of Saudi Arabia and possibly the Gulf states. Increasingly, you see them in alliance with Russia, with the BRICS. So this was all a big deal. And uh, this was certainly the faction that had been very pro-Trump. Of course, when we were looking at the, uh, the partners in Ukraine, many of these groups were much more closer to uh, the Biden regime, of course, far West. uh, and would have supported Biden and a lot of the neocons around the Bush families. We've kind of demonstrated throughout with the extensive links that they had to KPR, to Halliburton, to Dick Cheney, to that whole milieu around Texas oil and so forth so yeah um even though far west may no longer be with us their legacy certainly remains and the same could be said of the broader legacy of the world anti-communist league which a body like far west probably would not uh, be possible without It really laid the foundation for these covert groups that could be used to stage uh, paramilitary operations, color revolutions, and a whole other variety of intrigues outside the scope of the of state security services. And as we've seen throughout the series, increasingly this was done uh, through private military and private intelligence companies going into the 21st century. And there are very disturbing implications with that for the trajectory that we are heading on here historically. We have grown up in an era, really, since the Westphalian peace, where national governments have had a monopoly on force through police, the military, and such like course a lot of the conspiracy theorists out there will continue to insist that the real threat is that this monopoly, monopoly remains and that it will go on to some kind of transnational body like the united nations but i hope as this series has demonstrated the trajectory actually seems to be heading in the opposite direction with increasingly the breakdown of these large political bodies of course we saw that with the soviet union with the end of the cold war breaking into multiple smaller regimes Uh, we may well be witnessing it right now with the european union of course uh, the uk has already left there might be some attempted efforts to latch it back latch its horse back to the eu but the body as a whole Is plagued with problems right now, to put it mildly. Here in the United States, uh, the possibility that we may be headed towards a national breakdown is something that a lot of people are starting to take seriously, and the possibility that there could be multiple countries springing up out of the United States. And finally, china the prc uh, it appears to have a lot of internal issues right now as well and it will no doubt continue to be under pressure by the western security services via the whigras and so forth to try to destabilize it as well so what this amounts to is a potential neo-futile order in which we will see a diminishing influence from nation states and while the optimistic elements of the neoliberal order have long suggested that NGOs and this kind of thing would fill the void, it seems increasingly likely that it would be filled by private military companies and corporations. This is something that clearly seems to be evident in Africa as the colonial powers receded once and for all in the aftermath of the Cold War. Increasingly, the continent was carved up and has continued to be carved up by powerful PMCs, be they executive outcomes or more recently, those affiliated with Eric Prince and Wagner. And I don't really see uh the state of affairs ending anytime soon. If anything, in the Ukrainian war, we have seen that Russia was really quite dependent on a private military company, not just for special operations, but for full-blown urban combat and conventional military operations. And I suspect that this state of affairs will only continue to prevail, not just in Russia, but increasingly in the rest of the world as we head forward. And this could paint a picture in which... Um, the new global order will be arranged around almost british east india-like trade companies with their own armies again this might seem incredible uh especially given the typical narratives that are put forward for dystopian futures centered around world governments but you really look at what is unfolding right now it's uh not hard to see how this state of affairs could come about, as it stands already. A group like Blackstone, Blackrock are far wealthier than virtually any sovereign government on Earth. Really, all that's left is uh, the United States, the PRC, and Russia in terms of the kind of wealth and influence that can counter some of these mega corporations. And if they go, if they disintegrate. That will definitely create a considerable void. And the only entities that will remain with the same degree of influence, with the same networks, and more importantly with the ability to sustain elite militaries, will be the Corps and the PMCs around them. So, it's an unsettling prospect, but one that I think we have to seriously consider and that might ultimately be the real end game in the use of all of these different ethnic nationalists that has been a prerogative going all the way back to the world and communistly League, carrying on forward through groups like the Victims of Communism, Memorial Foundation, the Captive Nations Summit, and through operations that the Russians and the Chinese are doing against us. What it all amounts to is that <clears throat> ethnic, religious, and so forth, minorities are being targeted and encouraged to break away from the dominant national governments. In many cases, they have valid arguments for this. There's no denying that, but it would certainly create a world in which new players will have unfettered access to resources across the developing world, to military assets, to variety of things and it could result in a future out of let's just say Werner Vinge or another one of these um libertarian utopias utopianists who uh envision the megacorps taking us to the stars with their little private armies. Well maybe it'll happen but I'm uh, not optimistic and I think on that note we shall sign off for now once and for all with this particular series it's uh, been quite a ride i want to thank ed berger and send again for their invaluable contributions to all of this and as always i want to give another shout out to ed kaufman alias ton diligent he is the heart and soul of this series as he was with the original Wackle series i very much hope that we have been able to sustain the standards that he set for us he was one of a kind he is sorely missed so ed hopefully wherever you are now you have blessed us and our endeavors in this and with that i say to you guys as always good night and good luck to you all <music>
0: Out here in my wiki up Sick and tired of fucking up Sick and tired of pushing up Voodoo please, got juice in it Swallow what I'm about to spit Dunk got 86 From the Copper Queen for singing this I took it to the goat J Boo my people there, they feeling me Down low skin, roll more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell i tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big rap. Come on mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street, mama fight or flight adrenaline. You feel that little tingle in your feet, mama? No retreat, mobilize your whole fleet, hit the street. Tell me that you good for it. You want peace? Go to war for it. Say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump, baby. We gotta go. Screaming with me, scream, Geronimo. Hey. Never getting used to it. Got bells of weed and catapult with wet diffused in it. Shoot it over the castle wall. The migra can't patrol it all from Berlin to the great. While the greatest walls are bound to fall. So legalize it, Vato. About the gang is Chapo. Come on legalize it, don't need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer, everybody even Carter, a realized If a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash Honey, best believe, they sooner take it out your ass honey. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? We're talking by high A-Z that BMC, we got no economy if we ain't got no enemy, the Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, officer excuse me please, said I'm just eating my burrito, not the Georgia you're looking for you all on payday. See you at the Safeway. Bisbee lives on crazy checks. BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooded blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. I'm just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry hippies. If great white father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just that one. Our whole civilization, what?